Welcome to the Hypothalamic Amenorrhea Podcast. I'm Danny Sheriff, your host, certified fertility awareness practitioner, functional nutrition counselor, and founder of the HA Society, and of course, an HA recovery coach who has walked where you currently are walking. This is the place to come if you care about getting your period regularly. This podcast aims to educate, inform, and keep you motivated on your period and HA recovery track. So let's dive in. But last thing, nothing on the show should be taken as medical advice. So please seek the advice of your physician. Hey, are you trying to recover and maybe even fall pregnant naturally? I thought that might be you. And if so, we have created our best ever yet resource for you. Totally free. This is a masterclass. I've called it my masterclass because I have put everything into this, right? This masterclass is designed for you if you have HA or have had HA and are dealing with suboptimal cycles and you're serious about restoring those babies to full optimization and You want to create the ideal foundation for a pregnancy. This is going to be for you. So in this masterclass, I'm going to provide you a lot of things, including a lot of case studies, mine, Ashley's and Mishi's, as well as lots of our past clients and what their challenges were and what they had to do to overcome it. And we cover a really wide variety of types of cases of HA. So everything from primary amenorrhea and missing periods for years and years to short-term amenorrhea and what we did to handle that situation as well and how long it took these people to go from HA to pregnant with this system and how long it took them to go from HA to ovulating, of course, with this system. So lots of information, lots of case studies, lots of stats. We go through why this is not a weight gain plan and how we actually divide you into phases, the three phases of HA and determine what your starting point is so that you have a good idea of where you need to start with your actual changes and lifestyle and nutrition changes. We even cover questions like HA and people with a normal BMI and recovery for people who have had HA for too long. There's so much In this 60-minute masterclass, y'all, I'm impressed. And at the end, I'll also be running you through how to get a free HTMA, hair tissue mineral analysis through us, which is a part of our process for recovery and preconception clients that we're happily going to give you for free 99 as a massive thank you, of course, for joining the masterclass. So go to thehasociety.com forward slash masterclass Or head to our website and you'll find a link for it and find when the next available presentation is going to be. That's thehasociety.com forward slash masterclass. Hello, welcome back to my channel. Today I'm talking about something a little different to HA, but it's definitely important, especially for those of us whose goal at some point is to have a baby. So The reason this is coming up and that I've done so much thought and looking into this is because as I work with clients and they get pregnant, our conversation about getting your period back or optimizing your cycle or trying to get pregnant stops and it becomes naturally a conversation about pregnancy and all of the new anxieties that pop up for a lot of people when they get pregnant. 
And a common one is how do I exercise throughout training? What's safe? And a lot of us bring our anxieties from our HA and from not having a period or having fertility challenges in the past into our pregnancy thinking that what we're going to do in our pregnancy is going to strongly affect the outcomes of our birth. And what we do know is that there is research and there's also not enough research into a lot of places and areas around pregnancy and what isn't isn't safe because it's not really ethical to do a whole lot of studying on pregnant women. But when it comes to exercise, you hear a lot and you will see everywhere that it is widely recommended that exercise is safe for you during pregnancy, even if you have a history of HA. But what I want to do is take it a step further and I want to be clear that these are just my opinions and this is what I deduced from my research, but I want to encourage you to do your own and to maybe take this as a starting point where you can go and form your own opinions versus needing someone else to tell you what is wrong or what is right for you and your pregnancy. So when I got pregnant, I had the same fears in a way of like, well, what is enough exercise? Because I know that I have a history of intense exercise. I was an athlete. I took to exercise too far. So knowing that about myself, I know that my idea of enough exercise or moderate or low or high exercise is different to what someone else's may be. So I wanted to take that context of my own into account when looking at the recommendation that exercise is good for you during recovery. So in general, the studies are telling us vigorous exercise, exercise during recovery, it's not only not harmful, but there are benefits. Uh, Longer time in gestation, less cesareans, regular or or normal birth weight for baby, these types of things, like less cases of gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. Like I just had this intuition based on what I know and the work that I do and the people that I work with you that these recommendations could potentially be more nuanced. I think it's really important to be science-based but not science bound. Meaning that just because a study says something's safe, I'm feeling a little bit curious about that. Now, another bit of information about how I got here and why I'm doing this video is that the thing that took me down this rabbit hole in the first place, even before I was pregnant actually, was noticing a lot of women my age in my space, that space being exercise, Olympic weightlifting, crossfitters, runners, Olympians. I actually worked at a company that, you know, had like a lot of these very high level athletes as their clientele. So I was familiar with these people. And the amazing thing about today's day and age is that we have social media. And thanks to social media, everyone posts their birth story. A lot of people post their birth story. So I had all of this anecdotal information coming at me about people's birth experiences. And I had what I know about these people to be true, whether they're friends in my life from back home who are school teachers and they got pregnant or people that I know here in the States now that are athletes and they got pregnant. 
And I started to really notice a theme, like it stood out to me. I wasn't looking for it. And it just, it displayed itself to me that the high level athletes and the intense exercises and people with a strong history of dieting, I was seeing anecdotally a lot of preterm labor, emergency C-section, breech birth, things like this. And specifically like that, not so much like cases of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, but more like these preterm births and maybe lower birth weights and cesareans. So it was it was very curious to me. Whereas people that I knew maybe from high school or my childhood that were having babies that are like school teachers and accountants and just like having healthy relationships with food and exercise, they were having totally normal full-term births. I also know I had a totally normal full-term birth. After doing all of this research, taking all of that context, knowing enough about myself and applying what I believe to be true for me. So what I did was start a spreadsheet. <laughs> I went through all of these Instagram accounts and I was like, this is really cool. I have all of this data. I can comb through all of these athletes and read their birth stories. And I can scroll further back in their feed and look up what they've been doing. So I'm never, ever going to name any names. Like you can go and replicate this for yourself if you want to. Why not? But this is something that I did. And I looked at about 20 athletes and 20, 15 average Joannes, we'll call them. And so also I'm going to define athlete. Not all of these people were competitive athletes. Many were. Some were just people who've always been very consistent exercisers, who have, who I know to have done a lot of dieting, a lot of macro counting, to do a lot of intense exercise like CrossFit. And so like all of these people I've categorized based on what I know into kind of like two types of lifestyles. So I went through and I read their stories and I also looked back at what they're doing. I noticed a theme of these women at least posting, remembering that we can't always believe what we see on the internet, but posting about like doing high intensity exercise. They'll have like They'll be pregnant and they'll have like a barbell with 35 kilos over their head or they'll be pushing themselves on an assault bike or they're doing pull-ups and they're running and all of these things, you know, with the note that like the research tells us, studies show it is safe to perform vigorous exercise, especially if you have a history of it. Like if you were exercising this way before you got pregnant, then it's widely recommended that it's safe to do so while you're pregnant. And that's what I believe and is potentially still true. I just decided to look into it, right? So I saw these women were doing that, touting that research, but there were birth complications. All but one of the 20 athletes had full-term vaginal birth that was successful, only one. And of the regular Joannes, the vast, vast majority had a full-term regular vaginal birth. I just thought this was so interesting. So I decided to look into the research, right? Well, what does it say? I am not trained in reading studies, um, but I read a bunch of them and I found them relatively straightforward. Um, to understand. So what I want to do now is just go through what I found to be the top ranking studies and just what I deduced from that. And, you know, I encourage you to decide if you feel like it doesn't resonate with you, um, you can decide what you deduce from it. But it's the internet and I get to say whatever I want. So let's dive in. Okay, so this first study is actually a clinical review and it's to determine if already exercising women can continue their training through pregnancy. 
It notes that although most pregnant women do not meet minimal exercise recommendations, there are a growing number of physically active women who wish to continue training throughout pregnancy. So I think that's really interesting. Yes, there totally is a growing number of women compared to like the 70s and stuff. You know, there are more women that want to train through pregnancy or exercise through pregnancy today. It notes here that most people do not meet the minimal exercise recommendations. I do not believe that that statement applies to my HA community, my athletic community, women who are watching this video potentially. So I want to take that into context when I read this study and I look at the people who are touting this information, I'm like, I don't know, maybe there's a disconnect. Maybe, you know, I would wonder if this type of thing would cause us to think that our historical level of exercise is appropriate. So it also, it stated that multiple studies have shown that blood flow to the fetus is not significantly altered by moderate intensity physical activity. Cool. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to look up like, okay, well, what is moderate intensity physical activity? How do they determine that in these studies? Because it might be different to what some people think moderate intensity exercise is. And so for one of the studies, each exercise session was 10 minutes of walking, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise, 10 minutes of stretching and 10 minutes of relaxation. And for another, it was just an exercise at submaximal effort. So it's just important to note that the exercise for these pregnant women is potentially something that you would have considered low intensity exercise. And if not, and if this was a level of exercise that you were doing pre-pregnancy, then perhaps this study applies to you and that this is positive news. I think it's positive news throughout my pregnancy. I did do similar things. I would go into the gym, I'd do a little bit of stretching and then I'd do some like 30 minutes of really cruisy aerobic exercise, never pushing for time, very rarely breathing super heavy. The only time I did was when I was pre-pregnant in summer and so it was hard to avoid but I took it as chill as I could and the more I breathed, the slower I went. I can determine that from these modalities, but I'm not yet seeing like high intensity CrossFit or Olympic level training or triathlons and things like this, not yet. These studies used both fetal heart rate and birth weight also to draw the conclusions of the impact on the baby. Interesting, a lot of these studies were about the baby, but what about you? Right? So I do wonder, you know, with the mother, how was she? How did the birth go? How did she feel? We don't know a lot about why we women go into preterm labor. Like we actually don't know. So we can't say that conclusively monitoring the fetal heart rate is a good enough indicator to show that we're not pushing our bodies to the limit. We also don't know yet if exercise conclusively leads to less C-sections and things like that. Every study basically says that more support is needed, more research is needed, evidence-based support is limited, things like that. And the same clinical study stated that regular exercise may shorten the duration of labor and reduce the risk of cesarean section and operative-assisted vaginal delivery. Proved tone of abdominal and pelvic floor musculature and aerobic fitness may be important factors. I think this makes logical sense, right? Childbirth is an event. Childbirth is very, very hard. I think that, you know, I personally gave birth with COVID and pneumonia and the doctor came to me after and she said, you know, I can't believe you did that with like most people would need to eventually just have a C-section because you'd get so tired. I was so exhausted. I was only able to push for, you know, five to eight seconds depending. And then in between each push, I would cough 
and they thought I like coughed the baby out. But I do believe that a prerequisite level of fitness that I had because I was recovered from my period for quite some time. I worked with my cycle to train safely. I believe that I had sufficient fitness to help me get through an episode like that. Maintaining it was more the goal through pregnancy, not developing that fitness, not pushing myself. So I think that it makes a lot of sense that there would be one of those benefits to continuing to move your body through pregnancy. I don't think you're gonna make gains though. I think once you're pregnant, I don't think you're going to really build a lot of fitness. So pushing yourself doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and it does say uh, after that statement too, that evidence-based support for this is limited. It's more of just like a, a deduction from, hey, fit people are having less cesareans and they have improved tone of abs and pelvic floor musculature. So maybe exercise has to do with that, like probably. So this one study mainly touted the benefits of the increased blood flow related to exercise in terms of like the density of your organs, the vascularity of the placenta, increased blood flow. You know, you can make increased blood flow with like yoga and walking, let's be real. So I don't think that you can really take that particular study also based in 1995, like ain't no one CrossFit in 1995. I don't want it to sound like a piggy on CrossFit. It's just a really great visual that most people understand when I'm talking like high intensity exercise, but this could be like F45, this could be like Orange Theory, this could be like pushing yourself to the limits in the basement. This could be like Olympic weightlifting. I think that studies, honestly, like before 2010, definitely have a different idea of what the average woman is doing for exercise when they're saying it's safe for you to do your regular amount of exercise. My personal opinion. Hey, do you know what your blind spots are? As in, do you know what it is, what the thing is that is holding you back from getting your period back? Look, it could be an absolute plethora cornucopia of things, but in our practice, what we tend, the first place we tend to go is what behaviors and habits do you have around food that you may be still doing? And these are called blind spots because we just don't necessarily always know that they're an unhelpful habit or that it's something that we're doing, whether it be a subconscious or conscious need to control our food or our body, or whether it be something that you've just done for so long that it feels normal and like a preference even. We have created a checklist. It's a three-page checklist that goes through food types, behaviors around food, and mindsets around food. And what you do is you go through the lists and you check off and you see which ones are you doing, whether it be daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and how are they potentially affecting your recovery today. So it's a really simple checklist. It's just three pages. You go through it. There's a very simple scoring system to help you figure out um, how much this may be impacting your recovery. And it's just an insightful thing for you to do to help you reflect. And then you can journal about it or you can learn more about it and just start really working at any of the boxes that you checked and understanding that they're playing a role in your recovery. So to get the checklist, all you have to do is go to the hasociety.com forward slash blind spot and we'll send it straight through to you. You can print it off and you can check on it every now and then. I always recommend a reflection point every like four to six weeks. How are you going? Are you still checking that behavior off or have you, 
you know, systematically kicked it to the curb. So check it out. It's the hasociety.com forward slash blind spot, and it will be waiting for you there. So increased blood flow, I think we can all agree is good at any stage of your life for health. And you can do this with walking, yoga, super light dumbbells, super light empty barbell. You don't need to be pushing it to the limit. I mean, I don't see that from any of this research so far. So this 2009 study said that 160 sanitary pregnant women were split into training and non-training groups. So this is interesting one. This is maybe more applicable to someone who's taken a lot of time off recovery and is untrained at the moment. So the training group did light resistance training. No differences were found in their childbirth experiences. What I liked about this was the emphasis on the light resistance training. This tells me they probably did body weight work. They probably did really light barbells, maybe some resistant band work, which absolutely makes sense as a totally appropriate amount of exercise to do. That's what I did. And in that anecdotal sort of thing, the story I was telling you about where these, these birth stories were popping up from different demographics in my life with different lifestyles. Those that I was seeing have birth complications were doing what I personally would deem to be above light resistance training. They were running intensely, doing circuits. They were doing barbell work, 35, 40, 45 kilos, squats, things like this. I did do those things up until probably midway through my second trimester. I was back squatting and deadlifting 35 kilos and that's all. So full disclosure there. For me and my training history, that's very light. So it really depends on you and the individual circumstances of your life. There is no one fits all recommendation when it comes to exercise during pregnancy or exercise at all. So this 2005 study, it talked about the woman's ability to maintain fitness and be ready to compete back at a high level ASAP postpartum. It actually makes only one reference about training being harmless to the baby, but no actual information was cited or like study was cited on that. They just say it was harmless. So there was a decreased risk of preterm birth with increased frequency in the first trimester. First trimester vigorous recreational physical activity was found to have yeah, a decreased risk of preterm birth and birth weight was not significantly affected by this level of physical activity. So it's important to note here that this is first trimester. And it makes you wonder too, right? What does vigorous activity mean? So we'll get to that. Notably, in five vigorously active women, there were transient fetal heart rate decelerations, as well as altered uterine blood flow immediately after exercise, which raises concerns of reduced blood flow to the uterus with strenuous exercise. So they saw signs that blood flow decreased slightly with vigorous exercise. Note that vigorous exercise is different to the light resistance training that saw benefits to blood flow. But they do note like, hmm, if vigorous is showing some signs of decreased blood flow, strenuous is probably not great. And I think we're all in agreement here that strenuous isn't great. But what I'm just noticing and the whole point of this video is like, let's get our definition of vigorous and strenuous of moderate and high intensity exercise in check. When we hear the advice, exercising through pregnancy is 100% safe. 
Similarly, in a small study of six Olympic level endurance athletes, maternal fetal circulation during and after exercise showed that vigorous exercise where the maternal heart rate was greater than 90% of the maximum was associated with decreased uterine artery blood flow and fetal bradycardia that resolved soon after exercise was stopped. So I really just thought this was interesting because 90% of max is pretty intense exercise. And this group sounds most similar to what I have been observing anecdotally on the internet people in my personal life, but like I, all my stories are from, were gathered from stalking Instagrams. Okay, now this 2012 study showed that there were no associated risks with vigorous recreational activity. Again, I would love to know what that means exactly. Not all studies really should, they'll just be like, these guys exercised and these guys didn't, or these guys exercised vigorously and they didn't. But not many of the studies really told me what they did, which I thought was so annoying. I, I thought it was so annoying because, you know, especially if this was in 2012, if there was a study in 1950, 1970, like vigorous exercise can change in definition, totally. And when we're not clear with the studies or when we're not clear with interpreting them in magazines and like by Healthline and stuff, we lead women to think that whatever they've been doing in the past is potentially safe for pregnancy because they see so many other women doing it. It just, it's normalized, right? When we normalize it, the lines start to get blurred. This 2012 study showed that women of different fitness levels can run on a treadmill. This is a popular one, I believe, this study. And it really just took women and showed that if they're fit, they can go faster for longer. And if they're not, they go slower for a shorter period of time, I felt was obvious. Um, this 1991 study found that submax maternal exercise was fine, but strenuous exercise caused an increased occurrence in bradycardia, which is low heart rate. However, correlations between low heart rate and declined fetal health are unclear. This is definitely something that plays to my anecdotes on like CrossFit intensity, high intensity in general, lifting heavy weights through pregnancy. You know, we just don't know enough, right? We just don't know enough, but the studies are saying like strenuous is definitely not good. <sighs> All right, this 2003 study only measures activity based on lifestyle. So your job and your some exercise. The daily activity is self-reported by people. So we, you know, our self-reported studies are typically not great. They note that moderate intensity activities, which are recommended during pregnancy, were not measured in detail. So they admit they don't have as much information to really like control all of the participants in the study. Because the physical activity questions were asked early in pregnancy at about 14 weeks gestation, they may not really reflect the appropriate exposure window in pregnancy for effects on timing of birth or birth weight. However, the responses at this point in pregnancy would not have been affected by the manifestation of some conditions that commonly lead to medically indicated preterm birth, like preeclampsia and hypertension. The physical activity recommendations from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the US Department of Health and Human Services do not currently specify safe amounts of vigorous activity. I have no idea if this remains true, from 2013, but again, like we just need more information. A study finally states that further investigation of the modes of physical activity will clarify if recreational activity differs from other activity types. Further studies should investigate intensity, duration, frequency of physical activity sessions, controlling for total volume of physical activity. 
which is what I'm saying. Now in 2009, so more recent, this study states that exercise appears to be fine, but it does state that further research is more is needed, especially on the effects of vigorous intensity exercise in the first and second trimester and of exercise exceeding 90% of the maximum heart rate. A big challenge that they have with this stuff is low participation because pregnant women don't want to do that. The American College of Sports Medicine recommended moderate intensity exercise throughout pregnancy. However, the guidelines around vigorous intensity exercise are not as clear. Vigorous and high intensity exercise is defined as being at least 70% of maximum heart rate or an activity in which a conversation generally cannot be maintained. Okay, I like that. There is limited participation in vigorous intensity exercise in pregnant women, perhaps due to the fact that it requires significant increase in workload of greater than six to nine times resting levels of metabolism. But if there were people who were interested in participating in something like that, who do you think they might be? Is it you? It just feeds into this thought that I just keep having that women who have a history of pushing themselves to exercise harder are more likely to be able to push themselves to do so through a pregnancy, potentially to their detriment if they're hearing all this information around them saying that it's okay. Sound familiar? It's exactly the same as how you get HA. Even though you don't have a period, it's okay to keep pushing yourself. Like this is the type of information that maybe skews our perspective. So that's it. That is my personal take on exercise during pregnancy. To sum it up, if you have a history of pushing yourself really hard in the gym, if your intentions behind wanting to exercise throughout pregnancy is to maintain weight, to lose weight, is to not gain the baby weight. Like if these are your intentions, they may not be coming from the best place and they may cause you to be exercising past what is appropriate for your pregnancy. I just want you to not only hear, oh, the research says it's fine. Oh, my doctor says it's fine. It's fine. But to take into account you and what you know about yourself and your history. And know that studies are flawed. It is good to be science-based, but you cannot be science-bound. These studies didn't include you. You were not in them. What might be different about you? Don't dictate your life based on just what the studies say. Check in with yourself. What feels right? What does your intuition say? What are you seeing around you that's giving you clues? What do you really think you should be doing? And not your ED voice or not the voice that like just really, really wants you to exercise, but the piece inside your gut that is a mother. What does she think about all of this? I'm really curious what you think about this. <laughs> so let me know in the comments um, if this was interesting to you. If you have a totally different perspective, I'm down. Again, this is just my personal perspective. This is just like where my life led me to conclude. But I want to know what's going on with you. I'm totally down to talk about it. And if you like this video, please hit subscribe. Please hit the like button. Releasing videos every week. And we will see you guys soon. Also, if you want to work with me or one of my team members, we do coach clients one-on-one. -on -one. So head to the hasociety.com forward slash coaching or the links that are in the description below. And we'll see if we can work together and help you optimize your cycle, get pregnant, all that good stuff. All right, bye. Hey there, it's me, Danny, And I want to tell you about Temp Drop as a fertility awareness method tracking option. So many of you guys know that we actually recommend the fertility awareness method both as you're going through recovery and 100% after you have gotten some cycles back and you're starting to move forward for the rest of your reproductive years. So 
TempDrop itself is a wearable fertility monitor and we love it. It's a wearable device. So you put it around your arm and you can use that instead of taking your temperature manually with a thermometer each morning. So I'm personally a big fan of the manual tracking. All of us at the HA Society are. And that's the method that we use, you know, just using a good old thermometer. We use that with our clients because it's the best way to use it as a diagnostic tool, as a practitioner. And it's also the best way to ensure if you're trying to avoid pregnancy that you don't get pregnant. However, manual temping for many reasons is just not always an option. When you're in the middle of recovery, again, we do recommend manual temping. But once you're cycling, the temp drop is actually a really great hack. So it gives you basically everything you need to effortlessly track your fertility status, like where you are in your monthly cycle. So you wear the temp drop sensor while you're sleeping for accurate basal body temperature readings without the stress of early morning wake-ups. So I personally love this because with a toddler, my wake-up times are all over the place and the occasional sleep disruptions make using an oral thermometer a lot more difficult. So TempDrop's accompanying charting app enables you to track an array of symptoms alongside your basal body temperature. This includes tracking your cervical mucus, if you've been using OPKs, and then it also gives you sleep insights too. So you can combine these fertility signs all in one place, and that will help you identify your fertile window, confirm ovulation, plan for your period. And if you're trying to get pregnant, you know, identify whether or not you are pregnant. So whether you're trying to conceive or avoiding pregnancy, or you want to chart for health reasons like HA recovery, making sure your cycle is not slipping back in the HA direction, TempDrop makes fertility awareness accessible to all women, even if you don't have regular cycles or sleeping patterns. So track your ovulation in real time with the TempDrop, and we are lucky enough to have a 15% off code. So if you go to their website, they're usually having a sale, but you can stack this code on top of the existing code. So just go to tempdrop.thehasociety.com and use the code AFHA Society. I think too, if you just go to tempdrop.com and, and use um, AFHA Society at the checkout, that will work too. So happy temping and good luck. This episode is brought to you by Grassland Nutrition Beef Liver Capsules. Did you know that in terms of nutrient density, beef liver actually blows vegetables and fruits out of the water? If you're a client of mine, you have already been instructed to eat beef liver either fresh or in capsule form. I recommend it for anyone and everyone who is, of course, dealing with amenorrhea and fertility challenges out there, but I may even recommend it for just everyone in general. Get your husbands on it. Get your partners on it. If you have a history of HA and add on top of that, maybe a history of the pill, maybe you've been pregnant before, you know, through treatments or other, like you've just, your body's been through anything, you know, you're absolutely 100% dealing with a nutrient deficiency of some kind. And while it's true that testing is going to be the best way to understand those exact deficiencies, Eating nutrient-dense real food is going to be one of the most important next steps that you take with or without testing. 
So I've been using and recommending Grassland Nutrition Beef Liver Capsules for years now. And the capsule form makes it so easy to get your liver in every day. And I appreciate the transparency of this product in particular above others. So in case you're wondering, it's completely natural. This is freeze-dried beef liver in capsules. It's organic. It's made from Australian beef. And my favorite of their products is the liver with kelp because of the iodine from the kelp, which is important for overall thyroid function, which is often low in women with underperforming hormones. So rather than eat seaweed snacks every day, I get to take this beef liver with the kelp for my iodine. So if you're recovering or working on a fertility journey right now, do not skimp the nutrient-rich source of beef liver. Get 10% off your order with the HA Society and support your favorite podcast along the way. They ship to most countries, so you should be covered. Just go to grasslandnutrition.net and use HA Society, just HA Society, at the checkout for the 10% off. That's grasslandnutrition.net with the code HA Society. Thank you so much for listening today, guys. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could head to iTunes specifically and leave a rating or review, that would help so much because it makes it easier for other people with HA who are Googling around to find the podcast really easily. So if you do that, you're doing a service to all of the women.